All right, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Esther. So today we're going to read Esther 1, the first nine verses. And now that we're back in the Old Testament, we have more fun names to pronounce. So thank you, Albert. <laughs> now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Well, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Good morning. It's awesome. I'm full already. We can go home. Yeah? Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nathan and your hand in his life. And we thank you, Lord, for this church. Sometimes we don't hear of the things that you do through us, and so great to hear of how you work in people's lives. We pray, Lord, as we start this new series in the book of Esther, that you would speak to us, that you would be present in what we have going on in our lives, and that we may not forget that you are a living God, and this is your living word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Esther, you know, a Jewish lady who became a Persian queen, saved her people. And so we may be thinking saved from whom and saved from what? So saved from Haman. Haman was a man who planned the genocide of the Jews within the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire during this time of Esther was the most powerful empire in the entire known world. And Haman was promoted by the king to be above all the officials who were with him. In the most powerful empire in the world, we're given in verses 1 through 9 a description of the opulence, the wealth, the power, the influence of this king. And we are going to unpack verses 1 through 9 today. But before we do that, let's take a look at this huge topic of biblical interpretation, because not all interpretations are equal. The Bible is not meant to be a free-for-all when it comes to interpretation. One's interpretation of the scriptures is not equally as accurate as another's interpretation. So this phrase, this is what this means to me, it can be good, but can also just be plain wrong. Because what the scriptures mean to one person isn't necessarily what the scriptures are simply meaning. The importance of biblical interpretation is not what it means to me. The importance of biblical interpretation is to get what the biblical text actually means. And that's 
what we need to do as we study the Bible to discern what the scriptures really mean because in them is the living word from the living God. Now, I'm not claiming at all that my interpretations of the scriptures are always 100% accurate or that mine are the best. I'm not saying that at all. It is the scriptures in themselves that are to guide us and we are to look to them for our hope. So Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Where is this hope found? It's in Jesus. This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when we read any part of the scriptures, we must keep in mind the whole story surrounding hope, the grand story of hope. What is God's plan of hope? Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and it reads this. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, again, when we read the book of Esther, we must see through the lens of God's redemption, his redemptive plan of hope that Esther and the other books of the Bible are all harmonized for a unified purpose, to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. The entire story of hope is found in the incarnate birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. That is the mystery of God's will that he made known to us. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The mystery of God's will was made known to us at that moment. Jesus is the climax of the entire Bible. The whole biblical story. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When we read Esther, we are to keep in mind what the greater story is, who the stories point to. And to understand the Old Testament, we need to understand that God has set apart a people, the Jews, from the rest of the world. They will be set apart by what they do and don't do as people who trust in God's promise and that they will be forgiven of their sins, forgiven of what separates them from God. And if we don't keep this in mind, we'll miss the greater story. So when we look at Esther, we have to keep this in mind. Let's take just a quick look at Esther chapter 3. 
We'll get there in a few weeks, but just as a little foretaste, how do we interpret Esther chapter 3 when Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman? Now, Mordecai is a Jewish man who was not going to play that at all with Haman. And Haman was furious that Mordecai and those of the Jewish faith would not bow to him, would not pay homage to him. So Haman sought to destroy all the Jews' genocide. How do we interpret all of this? We need to look back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15 is a very important scripture for us to remember if we are to accurately interpret and understand the scriptures. Because without this verse, it is really difficult to understand what's going on in the entire Bible. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What do we have here in Genesis 3 verse 15? It's the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The hope that we have was being opposed to very early on. But God's will was to redeem us. He purposed to save us. And throughout the Old Testament, we see characters bruising the heel like Haman, but never destroying God's people. We also see it in the New Testament. You look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So looking to wipe out Jesus, but he will only be able to bruise his heel. Jesus will bruise his head. So you see how the book of Esther fits harmoniously into the greater story of hope we have in Jesus as Haman looked to wipe out all the Jews within the Persian Empire. God keeps his promises and it is out of the Jewish people where Jesus comes. John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus said, You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's where Jesus the Messiah came from, the Jews. So you see that it's more than just what this means to me. There's a bigger story than what this means to me and how we interpret the Bible for ourselves on a personal level. There's simply what the Bible means. What is the Bible telling us? And so some people think Esther is about being brave. Esther is about speaking against injustice and all these different things that are true. They're very true. But it's not the greatest truth. We need to take several steps back to look at the picture in its entirety, and it's much bigger than bravery. It is much bigger than fighting against injustice. It is the redemptive hand of God at work to fulfill His plans of hope. God is at work. And it doesn't matter what the world power is or the ruling power is at the time. He's more powerful than the Persian Empire. And nothing can separate you from him because he loves you. Everything in this book, 
the plan of redemption, Jesus coming as a baby, God in the flesh, showing us how to live, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and returning all because he loves you. All of it. And while the world and the powers of darkness want to destroy you, he says, no. I love them. Not going to happen. Now, an interesting thing about the book of Esther is that God's name is not mentioned in it at all. It's not in there. Isn't that odd? Isn't that an odd thing? After this whole introduction about the greater story and God's will and God's plan, our hope in God, God's promises, God's not even mentioned by name. Why is that? Why is he not mentioned by name in the book of Esther? And we can come up with all different types of reasons, and you can read all different theologians and scholars who, as to why they have all these reasons why, as to why it's not there. And I think I have the best explanation to just tell you the truth. I, I just... Because he didn't want it in there. Right? God didn't want it in there. Because if it was, like, it would be in there. But maybe God didn't want to have his name in there to show that even though his name is not mentioned, he's still in control. People don't acknowledge God or want to recognize God, but that doesn't mean that he's not working in people's lives. He is present whether people use his name or don't use his name, whether they know it or they don't know it. How do you and I know that gravity is at work? Because we don't see it. How do we know? Because you're not floating. Right? You're, you're on the ground. You know it's at work. How do we know God is present? Here's one way. Tyrants have tried to wipe Jews off the face of the planet for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Why? Because it's part of the greater story. Because if there are no Jews, there's no Jesus. And no Jews, it proves that God's promises are false. So how do we know that God is present? The preservation of the Jews is a clear indication of that. Which has translated into salvation for everyone else because Jesus descended from Jews. Now it's not to say that Jews are any better or they are any worse than anyone else. That was just how God designed it. It had to be some group of people, right? Had to be somebody. Why not the Jews? I mean, they invented some really great things, right? Like the jacuzzi. Like, it's just awesome. <laughs> I got that one from my Jewish friend, Duran, so I can't take credit for that. But yeah, that's, that's right. God is present whether his name is used or not. Most of the world does use it, but they use it kind of in a profane way. But he's at work. Just look at your own life. Look at your own life. Sometimes we don't realize God is present in the middle of what we're going through until some time has passed. And then we see his fingerprints all over our life. That's why I love those testimony times every month that we have them. Like when Nathan was sharing with us, just you, you see all the fingerprints of God in his life. Even at times when he didn't see it, when he was right in the middle of it, it seems that God is not present. He is! God meets our needs. He is never late. He's never late. He's so on time it bugs me. 
I'm going to share something with you. We're going to share more of this at our annual meeting in March. But on December 30th, the church was $40,000 in the red for the year. $40,000. Which isn't like terrible because we knew that at the beginning of the year we were going to make some investments into our ministry and we felt that these things would be beneficial to our vision of doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God. And so December 31st, last day of the year, Guess what happens? We have checks come in. <laughs> and God does that time and time again. And on March, we'll let you know how much it came in because it wasn't how God usually works. Because usually God works with us like within $10. You're going to have to add a, several zeros to this one. And I have no idea who gave, no idea whatsoever, because I don't look at who gives because I'm worried that that might taint our relationship and who I serve and all. So I, I just don't look at any of that stuff. But God was at work in those procrastinators' lives. <laughs> I'm so kidding. His timing's perfect. It's perfect. Right? And sometimes we think God's at work only when everything is just neat and good and it's just tied in like a nice little bow. I mean, that's when we think that God's at work. But yet, you look at our own lives and it's not like that. It's not like that. You look at the Bible and it's not like that. Look at poor Joseph's life. Any Joseph, really. <laughs> Whether it's Jesus' dad or the Joseph of the awesome color coat guy. Both of them. But let's look at Joseph in the Old Testament since we're in the Old Testament. His brothers want to kill him, but instead sell him into slavery. He gets thrown into jail, and he lives like this life that is just bad. And it's not until Genesis 50 that he ends up saving his brother and his family and a significant portion of the Jewish people. And this is what's written in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God's at work. The majority of the stories in the Bible are like this. To think that God is only present when things are what we deem as good is simply not true. And this is true of Esther's story as well. Esther was confronted by Mordecai about the possible genocide that they were going to encounter. And so in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 13, this is what's written. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. See, Mordecai knew God would keep his promises to them one way or another. Continue on in that verse. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Church, who knows whether you have not come to wherever you are, wherever you find yourself right now, for whatever is happening in your life right now. That's meant to be. That you're to act. See, God is at work. And if it's not going to be through you, 
It'll be through somebody else. It's not going to stop his plan. And he's moving his servants to where he wants them to do what he wants them to do at the time he wants you to act. And you know what? If you don't act upon God's will, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. The only unfortunate, sad thing about that is that your fear, your disobedience, your lack of faith, or whatever it was that prevented you from taking action for such a time as this robbed you of God's blessing. God is in control. And no one can alter his will. There may be some failures in our lives, some bad choices, some bad decisions on our part, on other people's parts, but ultimately God is in control and he is really good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know what's really hard for us to understand? is that we think life is all about me. We think it's all about me, and I am so guilty of this myself. I think it's all about me, and I need spiritual directors and counselors and mentors in my life to guide me into not being so self-absorbed. Because when God is doing something through an individual, it's extremely rare that it's not for more than just that one individual. There's so many people involved. What affects me usually affects my wife, my kids, the church, my extended family, my friends, whether it be health or employment situations or whatever it may be. There is an effect that extends beyond just me. See, God is at work in many people's lives through you. Through you, there are thousands of people that are affected, and often what we see is very limited while God sees everything. He sees it all. And that's something we can't overlook when looking at a particular book like Esther. That there's a greater story that God has written, and Esther is a part of it. Just like you and me. We're a part of it. So with that short intro, let's get into the book of Esther. <laughs> Verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, Ahasuerus was the title of the king of Persia, and many believe that this Ahasuerus is Xerxes. Whether it was Xerxes or not, this was a powerful king. This is a very powerful king, a notable person of power, as he is mentioned close to 200 times in this book. And he reigned from India to Ethiopia. We have a slide of how vast this empire is, from India to Ethiopia. In verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So this was a vast empire, and at this time, King Ahasuerus was in Susa, which was the summer residence of the Persian king. Otherwise, he'd be in Babylon. Summer times, he's in Susa, and his nobility and his entourage and all these folks would come in on the city. And so Susa is in modern-day Iran in a town today known as Shush. It's very quiet there. Very and it's because of all this partying afterwards. I wonder if the people are, shh, shh, no more parties, right? This was a 180-day rager that the king threw. 
Like, 180 days. Look at verses 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, a six-month party. Six months. I can't even do six minutes, to tell you the truth. When I go into a party, I'm done. But this party was showcasing his riches, his glory, his splendor, his greatness. I am Ahasuerus. I am the Persian king. A feast that... He not only provided for, imagine how much that cost, just food, but that he actually needed that much time to host it because his empire was so great so that all his officials from India to Ethiopia, the servants, the army, the nobles, the governors throughout the entire empire could actually at some point come by and party with him. That's why it had to be so long. Because it took some time for some of these guys to travel and then to, like replace and all this kind of stuff. And then this is the crazy thing. He threw an after party. <laughs> Look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 188 days is not enough. I mean, can you imagine? 180 days of partying. This seven-day party, this week-long party, was probably for everyone who was working the 180-day party so that they can have their own party. So even just the servant staff, the people in Susa, he needed a week for them to get through. Imagine the size of this guy's empire. Imagine the wealth. Do you get the picture of how big this dude was? Like, he was something. To get a further glimpse of what it was like, let's take a look at the decor, shall we? Okay, verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to the edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his own palace to do as each man desired. Have any of you experienced this? You get the picture of wealth and influence and power of Ahasuerus. And while the king threw this party, so did his queen. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So she threw a party for the women. But in that verse, it's made clear that the palace belonged to the king. Right? It's clear. It's his. So you think of like Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel and Barack Obama, and they're all combined. They don't have anything compared to King Ahasuerus. They don't have anything in terms of his power, his authority, his wealth. But even with all this power, influence, authority, and wealth that he has from India to Ethiopia, he doesn't wield the same power and influence over his wife. Let that be a lesson to all of us husbands. He controls over 127 provinces, but he can't 
control his own emotions. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And even with all this power and being mentioned nearly 200 times in this book, Ahasuerus really isn't all that. Right? He really isn't all that. You look at what Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God is the ultimate authority. Whether that is in our home or whether that is on a global scale as a world leader. God is sovereign and is ultimately the one who is in control. For those of us who think that we can control others, Either you are fooling yourself or you haven't parented a toddler yet. (laughs) Or you have forgotten what it is like to parent a toddler. It was so traumatic in your life that it's totally blacked out from you. We can't control babies, let alone control anyone else. People are just really arrogant to think they are in control. God's will will be done. Are we in His will? Are we part of the greater story, fulfilling the purpose as to why Jesus was sent to us, as to why he died for us, resurrected for us, ascended to heaven, and will return for us? Ahasuerus probably didn't understand that he was part of God's plan. Esther probably had some fear, she had some hesitation, but she took the step of faith that she was doing God's will, and it was part of the greater story. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How do we fit into that greater story? Let me close with just reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is our mission as followers of Jesus. When we receive power from the Holy Spirit, we are to be witnesses 
of the good news of Jesus starting here and to the ends of the earth. God is in control. He is still sovereign. And there's a greater story that we fit into. Whatever powers we see at play in the world today, they are temporary and they are a smaller part of the greater story. And the next chapter of the greater story is the return of Jesus. All the events of the last 2,000 years lead to that and the everlasting reign of Jesus. Who are we serving today? The true King Jesus or the false kings, the false idols of this world? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would heed them and see how we would fit into the greater picture. In Jesus' name, amen.